and welcome to another episode of the Brighton Podcast. I'm your host, James LaPlain. I'm joined for this episode by JJ Allaire, the founder and CEO of Posit, the maker of open source software for data science and scientific research, and best known for their multi-language development environment called RStudio. JJ has been an early internet pioneer, inventing Cold Fusion in the 1990s, which he took public and then sold to Macromedia in 2001. JJ has an impressive streak of successful businesses, creating Onfolio, which turned into Microsoft Live Writer, and FitNow, which created health and fitness applications before turning his attention to a statistical computing space. JJ has married his interest in education and political science with his passion for technology. It's evident throughout our conversation that JJ has dedicated his career to building something sustainable and therefore durable, defining success for Posit as a company still fulfilling its mission 100 years from now. In this episode, we'll learn a bit about JJ's background, seeing how his early creative ideas can be traced to the modern data science tools he's still creating today. We will discuss the impact that the open source movement has had on how Posit sees this as a critical public good. And finally, we will talk about why JJ created Posit as a public benefit corporation, ensuring his leadership team weighs the impact of their corporate decisions on far more than the bottom line. All right, JJ, welcome to the Brighton Podcast. I thought maybe we could begin our discussion learning a little bit about you. What was it that led you into software development and technology? I was always a little bit intrigued with technology. I think my first love and what I was principally interested in was politics and political science, for sure. My family was very politically active. I grew up watching Neil Air News Hour. I was like 10, you know, I was really into it. <laughs> but at the same time, we got, you know, like a lot of people, I was just talking to someone yesterday who had the same story, like in 1985 for Christmas, they got an Apple II, you know, so... A lot of folks had technology, some of the early personal computing technology around. And that was very intriguing to me. And I always thought, wow, this thing's really powerful. Yeah, I messed around with it a little bit. I wouldn't say I was serious about it. You know, a little basic programming, a little, I worked in HyperCard, DBase, kind of scripty stuff like that. So then in college, similarly, I didn't really do anything too serious with software engineering, but I did continue to play around. I actually created some educational software with HyperCard. And then I think what happened, I was so intrigued by the potential of computers, and I was inspired by the, I'm sure most people have heard this, but you know, Steve Jobs had this idea of computer as a bicycle for the mind. Yeah. just gave the mind tremendous leverage over solving all kinds of problems and being creative. And that was really intriguing to me. And at the same time, I continue to be very interested in politics and political science and economics, and specifically education. So I actually went to go get a PhD in political science after undergrad, and I just found myself way more excited by, like, InfoWorld showing up on Thursday than, right. like, anything that was going on in my classes. I said, <laughs> I think this is the sign. And so I sort of set out to, I, my first plan was I want to create educational software to help people learn about political science and economics. So I sort of said, well, to do that, I kind of have to train myself to be a software engineer. So I did that, and then I kind of got into all kinds of other things from there. I love the fact that you discovered something that you're so passionate about. Obviously, that shaped so much of your career. One of your early claims to fame is the creation of something that a lot of us will remember, Cold Fusion. Right, right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that kind of in the mid-90s. But maybe before we get to that, how did you get out of college and, and then all of a sudden to the point of creating Cold Fusion and starting your company? Well, what, what happened was I left college, went to graduate school, as I said, you know, came back 
and wanted to become a software engineer and look at educational software and so forth. But actually what happened was, at the same time, my brother actually went to Calister, and he was a political science major as well. And he became very, very intrigued by the internet and the web. And you know, I was also, but he was really just all in. And so when he left, he graduated from college, I was off trying to become a software engineer. And he was pitching, this was in like 93, you know, pitching local newspapers on like, you gotta like do your classifieds and right. like you should be moving to the internet, you know, really early stuff. Ahead of the times, yeah. Yeah, and so what happened was he got a gig with the local, a local newspaper to sort of do some of these projects. And he's like, oh, wow, okay, well, so we got the gig, but like, who's gonna code it, you know? And so, so he said, hey, Jay, you know, you, like, could you do this? I was like, sure, I, I, could, I could probably figure this out. So I worked on some early forums and classified type stuff. And then I, so I sort of learned a lot about the mechanics of how web servers worked and web applications worked and all that. Right. And then I think really what the catalyst was, you know, I had always been, again, not coming from a computer science background, I'd always been intrigued by development tools, you know, like I said, HyperCard and Basic and DBase yeah. and these sort of things that let kind of lay people build software. And with web applications, I kind of thought, you know, a lot of what I'm doing, if you basically take HTML as a baseline, there's not that much more to it. You, you know, a lot of people could probably do these. You don't have to be a Perl programmer or a C++ programmer or a Java programmer. Right. You know, you could create some very high-level syntax, much in the way that these other systems that I talked about let you work at a very high level. So I just, and I'd always been intrigued by this, and I'd always been also really wanting to work on products, feeling like I wanted to test myself, could, you know, could I create end-to-end -end products that people really love to use? And so I said, well, here's an opportunity. I think I know what this needs to do, and it's an opportunity. And so I just built a sort of development tool, which became Cold Fusion, right. that was going to let you basically really easily sort of integrate, you know, create database fronts for the web. It's interesting that the necessity was the mother of invention, right? I think yeah. that, that plays out for you, Drew. But also, it's interesting the path you took because you created markup language as part of this. And if we come full circle, boy, markup language is still a big part of the work that you do. Turned out to be a pretty good idea. You know, the thing at the time was a little bit controversial. I think people looked at HTML. They're used to more classic software development tools. And they're like, wow, that seems really hacky. Yeah, HTTP seems really <laughs> yeah, hacky. Still does. <laughs> like, can't we just get, like, like, yeah, can't we get, like, proper client server apps talking over TCP IP? Like, that's kind of how people thought about applications. And I think one thing that the people missed was that the user model of web applications was very simple. It was this document metaphor. And that, I think... Plus, just the accessibility of web applications, like they're globally, basically globally distributed app from yep. day one, were just really, really powerful things that made then the web platform just sort of manifest all the things that it ultimately needed to be a real deep application yep. platform. And I think there was a lot of, I don't even credit a lot of our success to the fact that we really were all in on HTML and and HTTP, and there was a lot of people in the industry who were like Java and like fat clients and a lot of startups who sunk a lot of capital, a lot of really, really talented yeah. people, you know, who'd worked on the previous generations of development tools. And honestly, they probably would have wiped us out. Yeah, we were small. We were like a few people in Minnesota, but they just kind of went this other direction. Yeah. And so all this capital and all these people went this way. We went, we were kind of went this way and ended up being kind of the right way in that. And that worked Very out. Very fortuitous for sure. 
So you had a lot of success, obviously, with Cold Fusion. I think it, it certainly set the tone for early web publishing, you know, major tool there. By my count, you founded four companies where the Lair Corp was Cold Fusion. You had Onfolio, which I think turned into Microsoft Writer product. And then you had a fitness product under a company called FitNow. And then our studio in Posit, where you are today. Is it safe to call you a serial entrepreneur? <laughs> well, I, I will say I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a reluctant entrepreneur <laughs> because I, I always start with not the idea that this is a company, you know, I, I and then it sort of maybe becomes a company or not. And I definitely feel that my skill set is much more in product development than uh, what you would classically call entrepreneurship. Right. Gotcha. So. so you've been running Posit since 2009. And, you know, it's interesting, right? When you look at, you had some quick company formations there and ideas that, that obviously took off. But since 2009, you've stayed focused on this. So is it because that passion that you talked about in early days have, have continued? Yeah. So really what it was, I, I, it's so funny because it just doesn't seem to happen like this in life usually. But I think when I, uh, I had left Microsoft and I felt like I'd been through a couple of startups and I, I at the time, open source software was becoming kind of an important yeah. thing. And I, and I also was, I was drawn to the idea of making durable contributions, you know, contributions that would even go beyond the lifetime of a company. Um, so I looked at things like Linux and, and I said, wow, that's, that's a really important contribution. And that's, that's just sort of eternal, you know, and I was like, that's cool. So I was intrigued by open source software, I would say. And so what happened was I was also, at the time I studied political science, I was interested in computation. I was interested specifically in, uh, in data analysis. So I used a lot of, the, uh, in addition to things like HyperCard and DBase, I used SPSS and SAS and a lot of you know Excel macros. And I kind of did a lot of data analysis and was pretty into that too. And I actually believed that it was pretty important that, that a lot of decisions and understandings of modern society, both in the sciences and in corporate environments, was like needed more data analysis. Right. And, and so I, mean, I always believed that from back even, you know, when I was in college. And so like I kind of came across R and I was like, wow, it's an open source analytics, you know, statistical computing platform, which I think is fundamentally important and it's open source. And R was something that had been, that was created kind of by a group of statisticians. And so that's really actually why it was really successful is that it was really made by the users. And they were actually pretty good at, at, at computing. But then there were a bunch of other stuff like writing IDEs and editors and productivity environments around it, web application development tools. There's kind of stuff that I had done that I thought, well, I could marry that to the work that's already here. And that might be a, a distinctive contribution, yeah. you know? And so then I said, this is perfect. This is like, I, I kind of got it. I was like, I think I, I can do this for 20 <laughs> years. I mean, a lot of things had to fall into place and it's always a bit of a zigzag path, but I, that was like kind of what I thought was going to happen. That's so cool. I, I love the origin story of, of you kind of really merging some of your educational interest and background into this technology passion. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about Posit, the company. Um, you know, tell us at a high level what Posit provides. Posit is, I would say, at a very high level, 
but were scientific computing software companies. So the idea is that data scientists and natural scientists and engineers have sort of special flavors of software they use to do analysis, to present data, to manage data. There's been a few scientific software companies, you know, SAS being one of them, uh, MathWorks being another one of them. Uh, Wolfram, another one, and very specialized ones. So um, I think at the heart, that's what we would like to be as an open source scientific software company. I don't think it was really possible. If you look at the roots of a lot of the, these, those three companies that I just mentioned, they were actually started in academia and they were nurtured quite a bit. And they started off as sort of in some, some flavor of freely shared. And they're really mission for like they're all private right. companies. Yep. You know, they're, they're, they're really about the, the missions first. And they built up really successful businesses. Now, at the time that they started, this was in the 60s or 70s, you know, open source software was not really yeah. a viable way to, to grow business. And so those, those companies do produce proprietary, still to this day, almost exclusively proprietary right. software. And while they, they've made like a really phenomenal contribution. I think for science specifically, there's a lot of sharing, there's the need to reproduce things, there's the need to innovate on methods that proprietary software is not good for science. And so our goal is to be a company in the mold of those companies that produces open source software as the, as the foundation. And I would say further, just to scope it a little bit, I think we are very decisively today, I, I say broadly scientific computing and scientific software, that's very broad. We're really in the data science, statistical computing slice of that. That's where we really play today. We don't really play so much in like numerical computing and engineering applications as like uh, as MathWorks does or you know SAS does a lot of things with statistical analysis and data management and, and so we don't we're not analogous in terms of our offerings but we're in spirit come from the same place and very focused on, on data science. I love that differentiation and I had not really thought of those but I, I certainly know some of the stories right I think uh, Goodnight came out of NC State right to create SAS yeah. and the math labs up yeah, in Boston. Yeah, that's that's really interesting distinction that you you drew there. So you you've got these three areas. It sounds like for your platform, there's a heavy data science concentration. Really, kind of the core of the company, I think, started with that focus, right? The language of R. Then you've got scientific research and, and analytics, and then finally, this third category really fascinates me, which is I think you've called it technical communication, and this is the way for scientists to present their findings back to you know the readership. Can you talk a little bit more about that third category? Actually, let me break yeah, it down please. a little bit more. I think we started with our for very first offering was an IDE, an integrated development environment for R, which was called R Studio. So this was a, a wrapper around R that made it more straightforward and more productive. And can you maybe just give us a definition of what an IDE is? An IDE would be sort of like all the tools you need in one place. And so it's like, well, I need a, I need a console to, to type commands. I need a text editor to, to, to write scripts. I need a place to like display plots. You know, I need a place to kind of manage files and maybe a place to interact with version right. control, a place to sort of inspect my, my data, view my data. Inspect. So it's like all the things you would yep. need to do in one application. Uh, before the invention of IDEs or the or the assembly of IDEs, uh, developers would have to do these in various number of tools, right? Jumping between contexts to, to make their job work. That's right. Yeah, exactly. You'd have text editors and terminals and various kinds of really fancy text editors that were 
kind of increasingly difficult to access for more casual users or, or users who are not like who don't self-identify as soft, as professional software engineers. And specifically, I think in the in the case of like of, of data science, I think this applies to R and, and Python both. You know, a lot of the people who use these tools for data analysis do not will not self-identify as I'm a software right, developer. That's a good point. They say I'm an I'm an I'm an economist. <laughs> right. You know, I'm a biologist. And so they don't actually want to, they're not like going home and reading magazines about like like tweaking out their text right. editor. So it's really that much more important to, to bring together kind of the best of what exists in some of these, in these environments created for professional right. programmers, but in a way that's really well scoped and and really tightly presented for, for this sort of audience that's not like I'm a software developer, you know. So that's good. that's the start. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's happened, there's been two other major, well, in terms of the, the, the genesis of the company, I think. So we started with that. And the other things that I, me and the gentleman named Hadley Wickham, who uh, is now our chief scientist, we developed a relationship kind of early on. And he was a person who was really building a lot of the packages that made R really very usable uh, and productive for lots of people. And so very prolific and really exceptionally good at, at interface design and kind of programming language design in a way, library design. And so we got together and said, okay, let's work together. Um, really kind of in different axes. I mean, I was working on the IDE and he's working on libraries, but like all considered together really added up to something really terrific. So that was another piece of, of the company. And then we came up with two open source projects that actually kind of reflected the other, um, the kind of co-founder of the company, Joe Chang, who's now our CTO. You know, these folks have all been here for 12 years too. You know, we've all been here for a long time. So, so Joe is the, the co-founder and the CTO. He, we worked together on the R Studio IDE for a few years. And then he created a, a product called Shiny, which is for building applications, custom applications around uh, statistical computing and data analysis, data visualization. And then we also came up with a thing called R Markdown, which is you can think of it almost like a reporting engine. Partly based on the fact that we had built a lot of web development tools, we had built a lot of application development tools. So we said, okay, let's bring some tools that are very tailored and customized to R to let people do the same thing from R. And that became, I think, a little bit of what you're talking about is the sort of, we, we call it data products. But the idea is you, you do all this data analysis and it's rare that it's just like, it's just one right. number that's the outcome. You know, the outcome is a bunch of data visualizations yeah. and a bunch of, you know, tables and a narrative that goes along with those things and, and maybe the ability for the users to interact and try out different scenarios and things right. like that. So. So we created those, and those became really a huge part of our business, um, ultimately, like essentially building uh, tools that helped deploy those things at scale in companies. That's a piece. So I think you, you can look at the baseline, you know, what we now is called, you know, posit workbench, yep. sort of the, the, the environment you use, the IDEs that you use. And then you've got these sort of data product communication-oriented yep. tools. And so if you want to look at the company today, it's really about those things, you know, reporting, custom applications, workbenches, the commercial side of the business, the open source side of the business is making versions of those things that are, that are accessible to everyone, regardless of ability to pay, downloadable, open source. And then the commercial side of the business is, wow, there's lots of, you know, large and medium and even small companies who kind of are taking these tools quite seriously. They're, they're actually replacing some of their investments in things like Excel or SPSS or SAS or whatever, and they actually need more than just what our open source stuff does. We've built kind of enhanced yeah. versions of, of the product. Well, it makes sense. I, I love the history you gave us. And, and that, to me, feels almost like 
generation one of the company that you described, right? Which is very much focused on R and data science. And then last year, maybe you started the next generation of this. And, and part of that, I think, was the name change. So maybe you talk a little bit about that process you went through. Yeah. So I, would, so I think what, what happened for us, you know, we love R as, as sort of the, really, the, the, it's a domain-specific language for doing data analysis, and it's very, very good. It's very easy yep. to learn. So that's, that's its course for me. There's also, as you know, tons of people certainly more people use Python for, for sure. doing data yep. analysis. And, um, and it has other strengths. It has a general purpose language. So people who sort of are doing a mix of data analysis and maybe other things, it's a more natural thing for yep. them to pick up. So there's a lot of use of Python. And what we, we observed specifically was that we were starting, we we're selling our products into enterprises and teams, right? Teams of, you know, five to a couple right. hundred data scientists. And all those teams were mixed teams. They all had R. Yeah, some multi-languages, yep. And so what we did was actually, this was actually, we started this three years ago, was all of our commercial products, our, you know, it was originally called RStudio Workbench, RStudio Connect, all started supporting Python. So we right. had Python IDEs, we, have, we deployed Jupyter Notebooks, and great, okay, now we can do both. But the problem is when we're telling the story, to people like, hey, you know, oh, you, you you have Python teams. You should use R Studio Connect, and it just makes people's head hurt. <laughs> like, wait a minute, uh, you're build, you're selling me a product to deploy Python, and it's called yeah. R Studio, which is an R I E. Like, how? What? <laughs> you know? And so, and so, we really felt quite strongly that in order for, the, for us to really survive and tell our story yeah. well, that we would need to change our game. And I think that reflected. Two things, though. One is that you know existing products that already supported Python needed we need to better tell another story. But we're also interested in you know that we're sort of past the first ten years of the company. You know, we also very much want to make contributions, uh, open source contributions, yeah. to the to Python data science community. And, and we've sort of started, uh, head started, and continue to ramp that up. So we, had, uh, I think, we'd already announced prior to the conference when we announced the name change that Coro, which was sort of like mentioned our markdown the kind of reporting you know we sort of have a, a multi-language version of that called Cordo uh, that supports R and Python and then at the conference we announced we have Shiny right. Python so we're taking kind of the, the same sort of things we brought to the R community into the Python yeah. community uh, and, the, and so the name also reflects that our investments in open source will also be across across yeah, line it's wonderful so it sounds like you know in some sense it's a bit about clarity and making sure you're positioned well, right, to get a larger data science uh, audience and community, which makes a ton of sense. One of the, the statements on your website that I love, and you almost alluded to it here, so I thought maybe we should dive into it now. Uh, and I'll read this back to you. Our imperative is not to grow at all costs, but rather to build a company that will be here fulfilling its mission in 100 years. Tell, tell me why that's important to you. I think it's, it's, it's important for a couple reasons. Part of it's important that I think we have built a special company where we earnestly balance the sort of ideals of an open source mission with the goal of, of, of having like a thriving commercial yeah. enterprise. Like I, and, and, the, and we have a group of people that really like believe in that kind of dual mission. And, and we're focused on scientific right. software, which I think is really fundamentally important. So just at one level, I, I think like it would be really great if this just 
wasn't a thing that was around for 10 years, but like it's like a permanent staple. Those companies I mentioned before, they've been around for 40, 50 years, you know, they're really important companies. And part of it is like, let's do something like that. Another piece of it is, um, is durability, which is what I talked about personally. I want to do things that are, are not just something that exists for 10 years, but that exists for a long, long time. Nothing's forever, especially technology, but, you know, and, but we can also, we can also remove yeah. ourselves. You know, we don't have to just do the same trick that we started with. I think there is a dynamic in software, especially because there are so many dynamics around both venture capital and private equity that oftentimes the window uh, uh, of performance for a company is very yes. narrow, you know, um, and really narrow. Like it can be five yeah. years, but you know, eight years, nine years, you know. And I think that especially, again, for scientific software that people are going to depend on, I think they need to not feel like we're just some flash in the pan that's going to be acquired and taken apart and gone. Like people need to trust that we're going to be here, that this software is going to be around and supported, and and that hundred years away. Saying that's that's what we're doing here. We're not here to to sell the company, or or you know, we have a very long term viewpoint, and that's express, trying to express that. So, and, and I also think even honestly, enterprise customers have been burned by companies that come and go and they get acquired and it can be a tough racket. The cost of transitioning between platforms is enormous, not just in terms of money, but, you know, resource time. I think it's remarkable you've taken such a long-term term view on this. You know, many of us struggle to plan quarter by quarter or maybe even annually. How does your thinking change when you've got a hundred year horizon? I think it gives you patience, you know, so you can say it's not an emergency that, you know, for example, Here's a market, like, oh, do we need to compete in that? Well, we don't necessarily have to successfully compete in every little sub-market. And sometimes, like, you know, things will come to you on the backside. And I always said, if we can be a really healthy organism, in other words, a company that's healthy, that's profitable, right, that yep. run well, a lot of times that actually is a really good competitive strategy because later... You know, other people say, you know what, I'd rather, I'd rather work with you yeah. and do it with you guys. It's, it's a little less frenetic. Like, we gotta, we got to, like, pump up our story to the right, max right. right now so we can tell a story to the markets yeah. or tell a story to an acquirer. It's more like build a healthy organism and be patient. Yeah. And Instead of creating urgency, you're really being proactive, right, and focusing on the priorities that you ultimately have. Yeah. Yeah. And then we feel less of urgency. You know, I think we do, obviously we do. We do, you know, our products for compete sure. with others and, and it's just a different, it is a different mindset and it's not a flame out mindset. I feel like there's a lot of flame out kind of thinking. And, uh, it feels like a lot of companies are looking at a short term horizon, right? Whatever that event may be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, we've kind of alluded to a bunch of machine learning and, and data science already, you know, given the work that Posit does and, and also the explosion in large language models, I feel like we ought to touch on this a little bit. So, so every company is having some discussion around machine learning, right? Uh, or maybe even data science more broadly. Is there advice that you would want to give leaders who feel maybe un, undereducated in this space that are intimidated by the language? I do think machine learning is extremely, so let's just take generally yep. machine learning. It's, it's and advanced statistical analysis are, they're really powerful. They're easy to do wrong. And I think that a lot of things can get in the way of generating actual value. There can be too much signal, for example, right? Too much signal, you know. And so I think having, and I've heard this from leaders, data science leaders, who've said, you know, they actually, like a lot of times they're going to hire PhDs. Like they're going to hire people with like a science yeah. background, right? Because it just people who are merely conversant in the tools, 
actually maybe don't know enough to do like really good, That's good data science. So I think that yeah, there's that piece, and there's a whole piece around the quality of the data that you have. So there's a like it, they can do remarkable things, but it's kind of harder than it looks. And I think yeah. I think you know having leaders who understand yeah. this well and, and can hire and retain the right people is, is really important. It's not going to be the thing where you just wheel up and say we're doing data science yeah. now. Yeah. Boy, if you read some of the marketing out there, you might have that impression, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. What, what kind of conversations are you having inside Posit about where you should apply things like large language models or embeddings? Large language models are interesting. I actually have maybe a, a little different take yeah. on this than uh, at least as, as regards to programming today, at least in today's state. And I think you're starting to see this actually kind of was my take from the beginning. I just saw a Wall Street Journal article a week ago that was sort of echoing this. Like my, my flip thing was like, now we can create technical debt two times faster. You know, and there's literally the Wall Street Journal article where like CIOs are now expressing concern that they're going to be creating sure. a lot of technical debt. You know, I'll give you my reasoning behind yep. this in a minute, but I can tell you another anecdote that I just heard from a, inside of one of the big bang tech companies where they did experimentation and they found that what was happening was that senior engineers were having to waste a lot of time debugging the LLM generated code submitted by junior engineers, you know? <laughs> and, so, and so I think it's important to recognize that. And, and that was kind of my experience. Like this could be really useful for someone who's an expert proofreader. So I think the one thing to understand, and I think it's really important, especially maybe for people who haven't spent a lot of time themselves doing software engineering and develop some yep. intuition is that the problem of building systems is not that we can't type fast enough. Right. It's like, I, I don't, the, the metrics are different, but, you know, debug lines of code per day are in, they're below yeah. 100. You know, in some settings, they're 10. Right. So, like, it's not that I can't type. It's that I have a system that exists that has its own internal complexity, and I have, like, a business or, or an analytics problem that's moving around on me all the time, and I'm mapping requirements Back to my system, assessing risk and cost, human interface. It's really rich, the type of reasoning that people do when they're evolving a software system. So, so because you can, you know, the tool that can spit out the first 200 lines of code and then with some proofreading sort of get you started, that you, you just started paying for that software right. system. Even if it's done, even if 200 lines, even if you deploy the tool, let's say you actually, you go, LLM, I want this. And let's say it's 800 lines of code. It's perfect. No proofreading. Yep. Deployable. You just yeah, started paying for that true. because you're going to maintain it. You're yep. going to debug it. You're going to, you know, requirements are going to change. And the LLM can't yeah. do that. It, 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 that is an artificial general intelligence you need to actually go inside a software system and do yeah. all that mapping and triage. And, uh, the way they are now, I, I think they're really good for, I, I don't know this programming language, I don't know this tool, tool. I don't yeah. know this framework, yeah. and that's pretty cool. And it, it probably does this saving a time, yeah. for sure. And it's probably not that hard to debug, right. you know, any, any issues. But that's not what a lot of software engineering yeah. is, you know, uh, and system development is. So there's another um, person I talked to who builds tools for data scientists and stuff, and they actually said, and they've, they've, they've got a notebook system and they've been introducing LLMs, and they said the most popular feature by far so far is uh, LLM that helps explain yeah. error messages. What LLMs are actually like superhuman at, they're superhuman yes. at summarization. 
actually not anything close to superhuman Correct. generation. Yes. They're, they're, they're actually kind of bad generation, even though they look like they're kind of good at it. They, yeah. you know, um, so they're very good at summarization, and you could argue that like interpreting error messages is sort of a form of summarization because they're going to look at your error message, they're going to look at your code, they're going to reflect back into the corpus of things yep. that they've seen, and they're going to synthesize something. That might work really well. So I think I think there probably are really good applications. Um, they might not be exactly what you're expecting right now. And then it is a moving target, obviously. They can get, and people will try to make them better. I, I love your perspective on this because I, I think in many ways what you said was the complexity of building a modern platform today requires so many disciplines, not just in software development, but productization and all these other components, you know, UI design and whatnot troubleshooting those things is uber complex. And so if you apply code that's automatically generated and you have a problem, boy, that is going to be a nightmare. And, and that's <laughs> even worse. It's yeah. even worse now. I don't even know what this thing is. Well, well, part of your ecosystem relies on modules. You mentioned this earlier. I think a little bit of even the start, you know, the beginning of, of uh, Posit, this was part of the combination. You know, some of them are built by Posit and then some of them are created by your community of users, right? So could we talk a little bit more, maybe dive a little bit deeper into open source? Yeah, so that's actually really, it's really quite interesting, in, especially in statistical computing and machine learning, because basically you have this, there's this core discipline of like how you do statistical analysis and how you visualize yep. data. Those are really generic things. And then you have this tremendous long tail of analytics right. problems, right? That really need to speak a whole different language. So like, for example, when we want to, we run fisheries and we want to understand optimal mm. feeding patterns or predict migration, you know, you actually like really benefit from having like a package right. that knows right. about fisheries and knows about the data formats that you get out of fisheries and knows about the sorts of metrics that are important and can start to apply some of the sophisticated techniques in a very domain-specific yep. way. And so you see in, in both R, especially in R, R has like a tremendous long tail of these packages for every <laughs> everything you can imagine. Python as well. And, you know, like a good example would be like even something really mainstream, like we want to analyze like tweets. Right. You know, there's multiple Python packages, multiple R packages for just analyzing right. tweets. And it's, it's not enough just... For a lot of people, it's like it's not enough to say, yeah, you have, you have here's the data stream, here's like generic programming language. Go. There's a lot of leverage that needs to be had, and you see that playing out, you know, over and over in different disciplines, you know, everything. Um, so, so that's the package ecosystem. And so, you know, I just want to point out one thing. This is really a critical thing about the difference between open source communities, free analytics, and proprietary communities, because the proprietary software also had a lot of analytics techniques. There's like toolboxes in MATLAB and modules and SATA yeah. and all this. But it was sort of like the vendor gets to say, here are the supported right. methods. And that's really, and, you know, they, and they did an admirable job and they do a lot of original research and they do a lot yeah. of good work, but it's really hard for one vendor in a centralized way to keep up like sort of an explosion of domains that which relevant, data right. is relevant and, 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 and statistical methodologies, machine learning methodologies. So it's just, it's like not sustainable to have that be a centralized thing. So the open, open source community really like solves that problem in the long tail. I, I think you're right. It's a great example. Uh, and, and what I was going to lead into was this virtuous cycle of open source. I think you just gave a great example of that, right? Where the tools and the data is accessible by everybody. 
maybe that leads to the creation of a, of a commercial product, which allows the company to invest those funds back into producing open source material again, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's our, that's kind of our model. You know, we want to, as a core mission, make, make the open source tools available. And, and when we do that, they get exposure, they get adopted. Companies are, start solving serious problems with them. And those companies start trying to say, well, we have to integrate this with our authentication system and our storage system and our data management system. And we need, to, we need, we need like metrics and our IT department needs to be happy that this stuff's not gonna you know, to light on a fire. That keeps their focus then on the value that they're interested in rather than all the other accompanying things that have to be done. Do you remember uh, what your introduction to open source was yourself? I'd say two two introductions, maybe ten yeah. ten years apart. But I'd say the first one was the GNU tools, you know, the GCC and all compilers and editors and you know, that early early incantations of, of what would become Linux. So that was one, and I thought it was just really interesting. Wow, and that was really pretty. It wasn't that widely adopted or widely yeah. known, but I was like, it's pretty interesting. This yeah. is happening, and, and, and it's a pretty interesting movement. Like it makes all the sense to me, and, and if that could really get rolling, I think that could be pretty cool. And then the other one open source project that I was really impressed by, continue to be impressed by, is uh, WordPress. And they really were basically wanted to create tools that made it easy for everyone to really have a yep. voice on the web, and then ultimately like to be able to build websites on yep. the web. And they, they did such a good job balancing. And even uh, there's multiple companies that were built on top of WordPress, you know, and and they really were always wanted to make sure that WordPress is an open source project that's available to self-deploy or for other companies to build on. It's always really yep. important. And I think that part of that's a desire. We just make sure it's sort of something that's around forever and available forever and, and open. And then and they also build a really, really great right. company around it as well. And so I admire what they did. And I, and I think for me that opened my eyes to sort of the that model of, you know, we can, we can actually invest a whole lot in these open source projects if we're able to figure out a way right. to marry them to a, to a business. The, the Linux example you gave, I think, is a great one because it's been so impactful and incredible how that competed against commercially viable operating systems, which really owned the you know, ecosystem at the time. And then it's interesting that you picked uh, WordPress given your history with Cold Fusion, right? Like that's in your wheelhouse. So that's great. Totally. Yeah. Well, I did end up working with them a little bit. We created Windows Live Writer, which was a uh, blog, blog authoring tool that um, that would, we worked on at Microsoft. And we had a lot of really good tight integration with WordPress. And so I got, got exposure to it there. And, and so. Well, I'd love to ask you about a series of events that Posit hosts called the Data Science Hangouts. I know you've, you've spoke, uh, spoken at them as well. Do you see those as part of your contribution to the open source community as well? Definitely. I think providing a community, we sort of different communities. You know, there's communities of people who are writing code and solving problems together. There's communities who are trying to reason their way through strategy, understand the landscape. Yeah. I think that's that's a great contribution yeah. to the community. And, and those are open to anybody to join it? Yeah, they are open to anyone to join. Yeah. Uh, so you've you've got a, a phrase that I will say is slightly provocative. I, I actually really love it. Probably wonder what I'm going to say. No, what is yeah. what is this going to be? Oh no! You said software has a fundamental right to fork. What, what do you mean by that? I'm not making a claim about anything that's intrinsic to software there. That's probably like splashed out of a quote, a longer quote. But I think what what it is is this is trying to explain 
one of the sort of essential freedoms of open source software, and one of them is that if people become unhappy with the direction you're taking, ah, they can fork. They can fork and go their own path. Right, right. Yeah, and so you saw gotcha. that, for example, when Oracle acquired MySQL, people were a little worried about what Oracle would do, and so they forked it and it turned into MariaDB. Yep. And so it could continue. And you see other, uh, I think that thing, same thing happened with Jenkins. Yep. It was a project that originated within Sun, and people were worried about the stewardship of it. Right. So they said, okay, we're going to fork it. And I think it was called Hudson. And then, and then they forked it and made Jenkins. The fact that that right to fork exists is kind of helpful as a check on sort of abuses of the steward and the software. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, the, the structure of Posit is also interesting, and I, I think it extends so much of your thinking around community and open source and, and how best to organize a company. Let's talk a little bit about what a public benefit corporation is and, and why, why you've chosen us. 200 years ago, corporations largely didn't exist. When you wanted to deploy capital to solve a problem, you actually need to get individuals to sign up for it. So like the, the you know, East India Company was like a partnership of individuals. And uh, basically it was observed like, wow, that's really not a great model for taking on big problems yeah. because there's liability that flows back to those individuals. So we need to create an entity that sort of is like a virtual person right. that is limited in its liability. Ability. And so corporations were created. And in the early days of corporations, it was sort of understood that th we're giving this special deal. Like, you get to, like, not have liability right. uh, in exchange for performing an important public service, which couldn't really, couldn't, you're taking on risk or capital requirements that are, like, not really achievable for groups of individuals. So there was a little bit of a, a reverse reciprocity and quick pro quo that, Corporations should serve some public interest. You know, and you can think of like public utilities right. as being examples of that. But lots of, I think people realize, oh, wow, corporations are not just, they're not just like good for things like that, but like they, they do a lot of innovation and they, they drive a lot of economic growth and they make things dynamic. And so it's like people are like, wow, this corporation thing, like we created to solve this problem, but it sort of also like has a lot of upside to it. And and then there's different, different interpretations then of like what the fiduciary duty of the board is really. And, and you know, originally I think there was an idea, well, you have different stakeholders. You have the community that you're within, you have your employees, your customers, and then you have your shareholders. And there's just case law over the century. And I think in the United States specifically, the case law has pretty decisively ended up saying, you know, they really, and I think there's a famous, I can't remember, a famous quote from Milton, Milton Friedman, of the fiduciary duty of the directors and officers is to the shareholders, period. Correct. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And that's, that, that's how it is. Yeah. And, and that's the law. But there are, there are people who feel like, well, there's the problem of externalities. Corporations can have quite a bit of influence over the lives of their employees yeah. and their communities and even their customers. So could we have a, a legal framework for corporations that simply allows for a slightly broader definition of the stakeholders. Yeah. Uh, and that was created actually about 10 or 15 years ago. A new form of corporation was created that actually then went into uh, the state law and then Delaware, uh, most recently five or six years ago, Delaware did their own spin on it because of course Delaware <laughs> had really, it's like, the, it's like the state of choice for Everyone corporations. Everyone wants to be corporate, so they, right. 
So they wanted to do a really good job and reflect, you know, and potentially do something that could stand up to being a public company. And, you know, so they, they really, like, worked hard at doing a good definition of this. But really, so a public benefit corporation is simply, it's very much like a C corporation. Yeah. There's two pieces. One is that the fiduciary duty is defined a little more broadly, all the stakeholders, and you have to weigh them in some equitable fashion. Okay. Uh, and then the other is that you, you state a sort of a, a public benefit that you're trying to achieve. It could be we're trying to make, you know clean water, or right. for us it's open source software. Something that is a public benefit that is part of our mission. The fiduciary duty also extends to the public benefit. You know, so so in theory, if you're abjectly not pursuing your public benefit, you actually could be sued by the shareholders. You know, they, they can sue you and say you're not pursuing your public benefit. So yeah. so that's what a public benefit corporation is. And there's hundreds of them now. They're yep. pu- they're public. Uh, public benefit corporations, many startups now. It's, hard, it's harder to become a public benefit corporation after you already have shareholders, you know, because you're saying we want a we want a little broader definition of fiduciary duty, and you have an existing shareholder. And I'm like, wait a minute, yeah, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I signed up for, and that's fair, fair enough, you yeah. know. So, so I think a lot of newer companies are starting off with that, saying yeah. that's a precondition of investment. Three or four years ago, we did make the transition. Yeah. To public benefit corp, and you're, you do need to get two thirds of every class of stock to do it. You gotcha. know, um, it's something you do need to get your shareholders to approve. And so we we feel great about being part of that movement. I, I do personally believe that it's it's great if corporations can have a broader idea of who they serve. I love it. And I, I think it fits your culture so well. Like this this uh, entity organization uh, is perfect. I, I just wrote this short article about dynasties. And I was kind of comparing sports dynasties to corporate dynasties, which is kind of fun to think about. And my my conclusion was that a company needs to stand for a greater purpose beyond profits or in addition to profits, I should say. And so it sounds like that in many ways is what you just described. Yeah. And in fact, you know, it's funny. There's a book called, I forget what book it's called, but it's it's called like the B Corp. I don't know if it's the B Corp handbook or something. But they're, they're, they had a bunch of quotes from a bunch of like... Nobel laureate economists and stuff. They basically said companies that actually do stand for a bigger purpose, they're actually going to be more successful businesses as well. So I think there's a bigger idea, which is like, as human beings, we want to be think of ourselves not as just kind of cogs in some commercial machine. Yeah. And so I think being like putting your money where your mouth is and saying this is our mission, this is what we're doing, I think is motivating. You yeah. know? I, I agree. My thesis would be that your employees are more engaged and therefore more productive and, and probably higher quality products too. Well, I, I, you know, I'm curious about, are there principles that you've established inside Posit to reflect this public benefit company? There's one thing, which is the, the B Lab that runs a certification program. It's pretty rigorous, where you, they actually evaluate you both on terms of your charter, but also in terms of lots of lots of internal practices about how you how you relate to your um, local community, your the environment, your employees. You know, we look at the metrics that they established, and not every single one of the metrics is like appropriate for every company. But I think inside the company, and I don't know if it's so much about public benefit per se, but we definitely try to have a culture of openness. You know, Tarif and I do total anonymous ask me anything every six weeks, and we answer questions, and we try to be really transparent about decisions that are made, and and we try to have 
a culture of humility where people, um, you know, don't always think that they know the answer and can collaborate and find, find the solution together. So, so much of your culture seems to reflect the scientific community that are also your users. It, it does. It does. Yeah. And that's, that's not a coincidence because I think, you know, we do have the founders and, and a lot of folks here, you know, come from that mind. It's not that directly from that community, but that, that mindset. And so we really wanted a place that reflects those, those values. Well, JJ, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this conversation. It was really fascinating on many, many aspects. I'd love to hear about your journey and, you know, obviously Posit's journey and your thoughts on open source. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate this concept of durability. You've given me something to think about. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, take care. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 